Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Freedom of Limits, which was taught for Lent in 2021. Our culture speaks a lot about freedom, but usually assumes freedom is escaping any limitations. However, true freedom is found not in rejecting limits, but embracing the limits God has placed on us as His created image bearers. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. going to go ahead and begin a new series today that's actually going to run all the way up to Easter, and this series is called The Freedom of Limits, and I'll describe uh, what that means. We're going to really be kind of doing an introduction today, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 for six weeks here. We're going to kind of expand what it means to be human and talking about what true freedom looks like given what it means to be human as we work through Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So we'll be doing that each week. I'd encourage you to be reading Genesis 1 and 2 and just meditating uh, upon it through this time. Today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and then chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. They'll be up on the screen here. You can read along in your Bible. And I will say as well, I'm going to be given a lot of quotes, particularly today, but probably throughout the series. The uh, notes, as always, will be out on the website uh, starting Monday or Tuesday. And this week, we're actually doing a special blog entry that's got a whole bunch of quotes dealing with this concept that I'm going to be talking about today. And the quotes I'm speaking of are actually not coming out of the Scripture, but out of just some other thinkers and to kind of understand this concept that we're talking about. So let's look at God's Word together. Genesis chapter 1 beginning at verse 26, hear now the words of your creator. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. One of the questions that I'm hoping to unpack over these coming weeks is, what is the nature of freedom? What does it mean to be truly free? 
in what's now a very famous phrase from a very famous case in the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority opinion in the court case that's known as Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So some of the Planned Parenthood clinics up in Pennsylvania. And at the time, a number of conservatives had a hope that Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned. Not only was it not overturned, but Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, based his opinion on this following statement that has huge ramifications. Justice Kennedy said this, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Now what Justice Kennedy was saying is here's the core of freedom. You get to define reality for yourself. And in fact, the society around you, the community around you can do nothing to to do anything to dissuade you that your concept of reality might be wrong. There is no law outside yourself or above ourselves to which we can appeal. And in this particular case, that was the case even if another human life was at stake, the life in the womb. It did not matter if a person defined their reality as being that's not a human life, who were we to argue with them? Now, when Justice Kennedy says this, this is not the beginning of the process. It's actually the very end of a very long process that we've been on in Western civilization since at least the Enlightenment, that what freedom has come to mean is the unfettered ability to define reality as I want. And in fact, ultimately, that you're going to applaud my definition of reality, whether it makes any sense or not, that you're going to get on board with it. So is that really freedom? Is freedom the freedom from any restraints, any limits, unfettered choice to do as I want, or is freedom actually found somewhere else? Well, in this series, what we're going to look at is the fact that freedom is not unfettered choice. In fact, it never was really understood to be that by any human society until ours in very recent times. Really, what freedom is, is recognizing and embracing human nature. To be free is to act in accord with your nature as it was created and as it was given. So we're going to be unpacking out of Genesis 1 and 2 a number of different areas that we see. There's even more than than we'll be able to go into in these six weeks. But today I wanted to begin by talking about this concept, the key to human freedom, the importance of understanding our nature as it's given to us by God, and how freedom is found in embracing that with both its dignity and also its limits, rather than proclaiming that I can define reality for myself. Now notice, we begin by talking about the nature of all created reality. It's not just human nature that is there. There is a real objective world beyond us. And this is defined by the fact that the entire cosmos 
which is just a word that means the universe. Everything around us is created by God. Notice how the scripture begins, because this is the fundamental fact. You can't understand the rest of the biblical narrative and story if you don't begin here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase is not just, you know, the blue sky up there and the, and the, the stuff around us on the soil here. It's a statement that means he made everything. Whatever it is, it, the technical literary term is a merism. It's when you say, you know, the tallest mountain and the deepest valley. It means everything in between. God made all that is. And notice in chapter 2, verse 1, where we come to the end of God's creation, we read, thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. He's saying, whatever there is, whether I've brought it up specifically in Genesis chapter 1 or not, God made everything. And this means we live in a universe that was created by God, is defined by God, is structured by God. It has God's fingerprints on it. Now, this has huge implications for reality. And it has huge implications whether I agree with them or not. It doesn't really make any difference. Contrary to what Justice Kennedy might say, I can define reality however I want to. That doesn't make it real. Reality is defined by the Creator. And so notice the, the implications here in the text are that the universe does not simply evolve by blind chance. It didn't just happen to be here. It is purposefully created. And therefore, the universe does not exist in a random, purposeless way, but rather has a definite structure and purpose that is defined by its creator. And when one starts to understand this, the implications for what freedom will be are huge. In fact, they're all-encompassing. Start with blind, random chance, then freedom's going to end up in one place. Start with given structure by a creator and defined with a particular purpose in mind, you end up in a very, very different place. Now, notice the text goes out of its way to not only state that God creates, but that he creates in a very particular way. And this is what we're going to be unpacking in the series. That creation is defined by definite structure, and there are definite limits that are built into creation and into each creature within creation. Now, why do I say this? Notice in Genesis chapter 1, the first four verses. Pretty famous. We've heard these before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Uh, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, Genesis 1-1 tells us that God's responsible and makes everything that is here. In verse 2, it's telling us, here's the original state. When God speaks and things start, it starts in chaos. Okay, that's, that's the idea that is here. Uh, it is 
formless and it's empty. That, that Hebrew phrase is actually used only three places. One of them will come up in the discussion guide this week. It's used in Isaiah and it's used in Jeremiah. It's a very uh, unusual Hebrew phrase, tohu wabohu. And it means that something has no form, it is unfilled. And in both Isaiah and Jeremiah, it is the end state of God cursing the land where his people dwell because of their sin. Because they have violated covenant, the land falls under curse and it falls into chaos. And God says that's just like it was back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And so the entire story in Genesis 1, when you read it, there's a narrative arc. And that narrative arc is everything begins with chaos, where there is no form, there is no structure, there is no limits, it's just chaotic. But day by day by day, God is bringing structure and form uh, out of the chaos, and he is filling that which is empty. And in doing this, what he's letting us know is formless chaos bad. Structure, good. It's blessing. They are exact opposites. Now, notice if you read the story, and we won't take the time to read it, but, but you've all probably heard this story before. Notice basically the entire flow of the story is God's making separations every day. We read in verse 3, he separates light from darkness. And God, when he separates them, says, oh, that's good. Light and dark are separate from one another. They are distinct from one another, and that is a good thing. We can read in the next day that he separates the earth and the sky out from one another, and God says that is good. He separates water so that land appears, and we have water in one place and land in another, and God says that is good. And in fact, these Definite structures are repeatedly affirmed. Every day God separates, defines, he's bringing more structure out of the chaos. And every day what does God end by saying? That's good. Now, now note the point. They're not just saying I've got extra parchment so I'm going to keep repeating this phrase and it was good. It's, a, it's trying to make a point to us. The more God is forming that which was formless, the more he is filling that which was unfilled, the more he is giving structure to chaos, God says it was good, it was good, it was good. And in fact, we realize when we come to the very end, what does God say? It was very good. Ah, see, now we've gotten somewhere. It's not just a, a mass, a lump out there. There's actually structure. I've made separations. I've made divisions. And this is good. Furthermore, if you note within it, all life is created to inhabit the structured reality and to do it within its own limits. I don't have time this morning. Uh, you can look up in the discussion guide some past teachings where I've done this, but there's a great literary structure in Genesis chapter 1 where what God's doing on days 1, 2, and 3 is paralleled by what he's doing on days 4, 5, and 6. And what he's forming on days 1, 2, and 3 is being filled on days 4, 5, and 6 that it's utilizing. There's a great literary structure because God is saying, I not only make things and I not only structure them, but as I bring forth life, life inhabits the place that I have made for it. Sea creatures are created in a particular way that suits them to the water. Birds are created in a particular 
way to suit them to their environment in the air. Each kind of life is created and blessed. Remember the word there is within its kind. They're not this mix. They're not this merging. They are separate and distinct from other life forms. And every time God does it, it is good. And again, you can note that when he he makes the heavens on day two, he makes birds on day five. They go together. And when he makes the land come uh, on day three, you get land animals on day six. There's a parallelism that goes on here. So that the writer is wanting us to understand from the very beginning that the nature of reality is that structure, distinctions, separations, limits are good. It's not good if the water overwhelms the land, okay? Remember Genesis 6 with Noah. What happens? The, all, the, all the fountains break forth and the whole earth is covered in water. Is that good? See, we're, we're right back to Genesis 1-2. We're right back in a watery chaos, which is not what God wants. So the whole point of the structure is to tell us that, and that any attempt to live apart from this idea leads to chaos, not to blessing. If a fish tries to flop up onto the land, it's not blessing. It's chaos, okay? If you know, a land animal tries to go live in the bottom of the ocean, not blessing, chaos, curse. Everything has a structure and a way that it's supposed to live. Now, the next question might be, well, that's good for fish, but I'm a human, and it's different for us. Well, what does the Scripture speak to us about that? It tells us two key points here in Genesis 1 and 2, and that is the glory and also the limits of our human nature. So notice, first off, human beings are created like everything else we've read about, but there's something distinct. We are created in the image of God. In verses 26 to 28, we read this phrase where God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, I want you to rule. So notice here, humans are created, but we are being presented as the apex of creation. And this is presented to us four different ways. Number one, the whole chapter has not been poetry. Okay, it's been, it's been highly stylized. It's a, it's, it's a great piece of literary writing, but it's not poetry. But when it comes to the creation of humanity, it shifts to poetry because it's making a distinction. When you're reading along, you say, whoa, we just kind of changed here a little bit. Secondly, it's the only time God announces ahead of time what he's going to do. God didn't announce, I think I'll make light. He just said, let there be light. He didn't announce, I'm going to make birds. He just says, let there be, you know, birds flying in the heavens. But with humanity, he stops and says, here's what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to make human beings. And that's because, thirdly, the only thing we're told is actually in the image of God is humanity. While we are like the rest of creation in that we are creatures, we are created We are not like the rest of creation in that they are not the image of God. There is a gap. There is a gulf 
between humanity and everything else because we alone are the image of God. And then this is reinforced immediately in verse 28 by saying, you are to rule over the rest of creation. You have uh, vice regency, if you will. I'm, I'm putting this under your charge because you are my image. They are not, and therefore you are to rule over the rest of creation, which is pretty amazing when you think of it because we are not a particularly impressive creature. I mean, you know, if you don't believe that, watch some of the, you know, National Geographic specials and stuff. There are things far larger, far stronger that can, you know, swim far deeper and hold their breath. I mean, about the only thing we come out on top on is brain power. That's about it. Everything else, uh, we're not that impressive. But God says, but you're my image, therefore you are going to rule. Now, this idea is the inherent dignity and worth of every human being. Because we are created, uh, we are one with the rest of creation. And that goes from subatomic particles to swirling galaxies, from an amoeba to a blue whale, from a rock to an archangel Gabriel. We share creation. We're created like all of those things. However, only we are the image of God, and therefore we're set apart from the rest of creation, and we are given a unique value and a unique dignity because we are the image of God. And so it's imperative that we understand our value, our dignity is not found in any particular trait. It's not even in our brain power or our sense of reason. It's not even in our dominance over other creatures. Our dignity and worth is purely that we are in the image of God. That's it, period. God has said, I uniquely stamp you out of all the rest of creation with my image. Because consider, friends, angels are smarter than you and I are, can do everything we can do and more, and yet they are not the image of God. And I would encourage you to think as we're heading towards Easter, when they fell, redemption was not offered. But it was offered to you, and it was offered to me. And that's because of the image of God. Now this is important because if you go back and you try to follow a thing and say, well, I believe in a universe that's evolved by chance, pure materialism has no basis for human dignity or freedom. If we're here by chance, it is dog-eat-dog, and the strong are going to dominate the weak. And that's a problem. And we try to get around that, but in society after society after society, if you start with that basis, you end up with one human crushing another. It is the inevitable outcome. Because if we're not in the image of God, we don't have any particular dignity. Now, that's our dignity, but I want you to note that some people, you know, would deny the dignity, and then you end up with doggy dog. Some people embrace the dignity and say, therefore, we're free to do whatever we want to do. But see, the biblical story says, no, that's not true either. We still are creatures, and we are given definite limits, and primarily that we must obey God. So notice 
in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 1, you get a broad overview, and then Genesis 2 is kind of moves to a separate angle and drills down on creation. And God speaks very clearly about what happens with us. And notice there in verses 15 to 17 that we're told that God takes the man and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. That kind of defines our stewardship, that we're to cultivate the earth, but we are to also protect it. We're not just to use it however we want. And then God says, look, you've got everything in this garden you're free to eat from. Everything but one tree. That tree, I am telling you, do not touch. So humanity has two things. Number one, we're given a command and a charge by God. We're to work and take care of the garden, and we're going to be held responsible. But then secondly, there is a specific command, and you will either obey and recognize my authority, and there will be blessing, or you will disobey. And you will attempt, notice the particular tree, you will attempt to determine good and evil for yourselves. And God is letting us know that's above your pay grade. You don't have the capability to determine good and evil for yourselves. And if you think we do, I invite you to read history. Just read human history. It's a sad tale of us attempting to determine good and evil for ourselves. And every time we start off with nice flowery words and we're going to do this, it descends into chaos quickly. We move back from very good to chaos is what we do. And so this belongs to God and, uh, alone. And so notice what God says is if you go down this path, it will not be freedom. It will not be blessing. That's what the, the serpent comes in in Genesis 3. Remember, says, you'll be like God, to which the answer was, I'm already like God. I'm as like God as a creature could possibly be. And the attempt to become more like God, to determine good and evil for myself, thinking that this is going to bring me freedom, it actually brings slavery. Thinking this is going to bring me life, it actually brings death because it goes against the nature of reality. And so freedom, blessing, and life come from embracing our place within creation and obeying God, while bondage, curse, and death come from rejecting our place within creation and disobeying God. So this is kind of what we're going to be unpacking in this series is that the key to human freedom is for you and I to recognize and embrace our inherent nature as we were created by God, including both the God-given dignity we have, but also the limits that are there. That's why you kind of notice in the logo that the key is the limits, actually, which goes directly against what our culture says. Now, how do we apply this? And I'm going to be extending, applying the word will be a little bit more in-depth than, than usual. And I'm going to be giving a number of different quotes because I want you to see and think through where we're at. If I had said this 500 years ago, everybody would have yawned and said nobody disagrees. Today, that is not the case. Today, people will tell me that's not freedom. You're talking slavery. We know what freedom is and what we want. So first question in applying the word, do you and I understand and see the false notion of freedom in our culture? 
And it's very ironic because we Americans, you know, we like waving the flag and we have a celebration and we think we understand freedom and we do not understand freedom. We do not understand it at all. Our culture falsely thinks freedom is defining and living in our own reality and saying human nature is what I say human nature is. Again, I remind you of Justice Kennedy's words. Please, please note them again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Okay, now, there are limits here because if my concept of existence is I can kill people and eat them, they say, whoa, 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 whoa. But of course, well, now you've just self-refuted your own concept. This philosophy is a self-refuting philosophy because it's a claim that we don't believe in metaphysical truth statements except for the metaphysical truth statement which I'm making right now. We don't believe in truth except for the truth that we don't believe in truth. The, The whole concept philosophically is a house of cards. But Justice Kennedy, I'm not here to pick on him, he's just expressing what's been building for hundreds of years in our culture. Now, this long march that we've had to ignore the limits of creation, to define reality as we want it to be, especially is centered in on human nature. That's where we really care. Uh, There was a German philosopher named Joseph Pieper, and he wrote a book called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Uh, That is one of the early books I read this year. And in the introduction, uh, the, the man writing the introduction, James Shaw, said this, we're not a culture that never understood what a human being was in his nature and in his destiny. Rather, we are a culture that having once known these things, has decided against living them or understanding them. Indeed, we have decided to reject most of them almost as an act of defiance, as an act of pure humanism, as if what we are is not first given to us. So you see, what he's stating is, at one time we as a culture understood. Again, I would have said this and everybody just said, well, everybody knows that. But that is not where we are now. We have rejected that. And in fact, he's very much right. We've done it, not almost as, as an act of defiance. We're no longer hiding in the bushes. We are looking God in the face and plucking the fruit. He said, I'll do as I want to do, and you won't tell me otherwise. Now, what's interesting is, I uh, early on this year, as I was getting ready for this, I've read three of the greatest dystopian novels of the 20th century, Brave New World, 1984, and uh, Fahrenheit 451, and I've created a drinking problem as a result. Um, no, th- they are rather depressing, But what's interesting is, and I'm going to talk about it actually, if you tune into After Hours on Tuesday, I'm going to talk about the commonalities between them, because they're all saying something seriously going wrong with our society, we're going to end up in a very, very bad place. And all of them are talking about how we are denying truth and reality, and we are denying human nature. Now, probably the best well-known of these novels was 1984 by George Orwell, and in a key scene at one point, the, the main character Winston's being held in the Ministry of Truth, 
which is a ministry that does nothing but speak lies, and the ministry of love, actually, he's being held in, which is a torture chamber. So he's being tortured by the ministry of love. And he's working on this, and here's what he says. He says, anything could be true. The so-called laws of nature were nonsense. The law of gravity was nonsense. If I wished, O'Brien had said, and O'Brien's a big party member, I could float off this floor like a soap bubble. Winston worked it out. If he thinks he floats off the floor, and if I simultaneously think I see him do it, then the thing happens. And as he goes through thinking about this, he says, it needed a sort of athleticism of mind, an ability at one moment to make the most delicate use of logic, and at the next to be unconscious of the crudest logical errors. Stupidity was as necessary as intelligent and as difficult to attain. If I wanted to write something over some of the stuff going on in our culture right now, stupidity is as necessary as intelligence and as difficult to attain. See, that's what you, you know, I mean, the obvious answer is, well, if you think you can float off the floor, then float off the floor. Of course, the ministry of love would torture you for saying that. But that's the, the nature of what's going on. We're not defined by anything outside of ourselves. And so he goes on because the ultimate goal in doing this, make no mistake when you, when you hear these kind of statements and with what, even what Justice Kennedy is saying, the ultimate goal is to deny the reality of a given human nature which should be embraced and rather to declare that we're free to make ourselves as we want to be. In other words, we're plastic people. If you don't like what you are, shape yourself to be something else. It doesn't matter what you were. It matters what you want to be. So again, in 1984, O'Brien says this. He says, we control life, Winston, at all its levels. You're imagining that there is something called human nature, which will be outraged by what we do and will turn against us. But we create human nature. Men are infinitely malleable. Friends, welcome to 1984. Because that's exactly what our Supreme Court has said in multiple cases. We are malleable. If you don't like what you are, declare yourself to be something else. And the reason for this, the, the goal that we've been driving at is to be authentic means that I do whatever I desire. The only thing that is inauthentic is to judge or refuse my desires. To do that is inauthentic and is bondage. Even if my desires are wrong, because of course we don't believe there is such a thing as wrong, because there is no human nature to which I am called to uh, conform myself to. So the poet William Blake actually wrote these lines. These are not, he, he believed this. Okay, this is a couple hundred years ago. Here's what William Blake said. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. If you want something and you don't do it, you're spread disease by that. And then even more clearly, sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. I don't think the man could be any more clear. It's less heinous to kill a baby in the cradle than it is to have a desire, the authentic you, and not act on that 
desire because there is no external standard to which you're being held there is no human nature so we can't say your desire be wrong if you desire it it must be right and so this false view of freedom runs through our entire culture and please hear me it is the default view of many professing Christians we only react when it leads to somebody actually acting out on it. And we say, whoa, 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 I, I don't like that particular behavior. But friend, the problem is you've been following it all along, and then you're just coming to the end, and you don't like where it's going. Well, it's been heading that way the whole time. It is a false view of freedom. Anything that says, well, you know, it's a free world, if if it's two consenting adults as long as people consent. All these ideas I hear Christians state all the time. The entire notion of freedom is wrong. And so it has to be rejected in toto. If Genesis 1 and 2 is true, this whole experiment we've been on for the last 350 years in Western civilization is wrong. It's wrecked at its root. Now I'm going to be this in five different areas coming up but we're kind of getting shocked by some of the things if you're looking out in our culture now you may be shocked and dismayed at things you're hearing and seeing they've been coming and that's why in reading the dystopian novels these guys saw them a hundred years ago and interestingly enough even Huxley was an atheist and he still saw where it was going and saying, we got a problem because we're denying the nature of reality and this only ends in destruction. So that's that first question. Now the second question for us, and then we'll come to the Lord's table, is do I see that freedom requires embracing the nature of creation as given by God? The first fundamental fact, friend, is you and everything around you, and everything you will ever come into contact with is created by God. It is not self-existent. You are not self-existent. I am not self-existent. The universe is not self-existent. Only God is self-existent. And because of that, creatures are inherently limited by the very fact that they're created, by the very fact that they're not self-existent and eternal. They exist in a particular cosmos with specific laws, and they have specific natures that have got to be recognized and obeyed. Now, what this means is there is objective reality outside of you and me, and I don't get to define it. I don't get to make it for myself and say, well, that's reality for you, but it's not reality for me. No, there is reality, and I'm either recognizing that reality or I am not recognizing the reality it's outside of me it's outside of my control it actually exists and it imposes limits upon us and blessing comes when I accept those limits and cursing comes when I reject those limits so here's a phrase by GK Chesterton the, the great Christian thinker in the early 20th century had huge influence on guys like CS Lewis Chesterton said this, if you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If you, in your bold, creative way, hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you'll really find that you're not free to draw a giraffe. 
The moment you step into a world of facts, you step into a world of limits. You hear what Chesterton is saying is, to exist in reality, when you get outside of your little head, there is a real world. And in the real world, in his silly case, giraffes have long necks. And you can try and draw them otherwise. You can try and imagine them otherwise. You can declare that you're a giraffe. You're not. It doesn't matter. There is a world of facts. And what this means is true freedom is found in knowing and embracing my created nature and living within the limits that it imposes. Tim Keller, a pastor and great thinker up in New York City, in the book The Reason for God, said this, because a fish absorbs air from wa- uh, oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon live is destroyed. Real freedom is finding the right restrictions. Now this particular chapter Keller's bringing up because he's living in Manhattan, and one of the main complaints about the gospel was, you all believe that there are these limits there, and I want limitlessness. And what Keller's trying to point out is, you really don't want limitlessness. If you as a fish swim up onto the shore, it's death because you're created to thrive as a fish. Well, we are created as a particular type of creature, which is a human being, and that's the way we do it. Now, see, the rest of the cosmos does this instinctually. There's no gathering of fish out in the bay a mile from here right now saying, we've had it, we're done with the limits, we're marching up onto the shore. They don't do that, okay? You and I, however, do have the capability of doing that. The entire cosmos acts according to its nature, except we little bipeds. We think we get to define reality. That's the heart of freedom, is I define reality for myself. And so that's what we do. And see, we've been given by God because we are his creation. We were given a command and told to obey, but we had the freedom to say no. And that's still there. But I want you to understand, that's not freedom. That's bondage. Because we're the kind of creatures that only prosper when we embrace the way God has made it. So the key to an authentic life, a life of blessing, is not defining reality for myself, but rather living in line with the nature of the cosmos as created and defined by God. Now I'm going to give another quote from one of these dystopian novels. In Brave New World, I was shocked. I was out walking one morning in the ice, and I was listening to Brave New World, and I had to stop and jot this down because at a key moment, the the protagonist is speaking to the savage. And the savage is the only one who's actually ever read books because everything's upside down in these dystopian worlds. And they're discussing human nature because the savage knows there is human nature. And he knows that they should be limited when everybody else is denying that. And the guy suddenly quotes Cardinal Newman, a Roman Catholic cardinal from the 20th century. And here's what Cardinal Newman said that's right there in the middle of this dystopian novel saying this is actually the way out. We are not our own. 
uh, any more than what we possess is our own. We did not make ourselves. We cannot be supreme over ourselves. We cannot be our own master. We are God's property by creation, by redemption, by regeneration. He has a triple claim upon us. Is it not our happiness thus to view the matter? And the answer is yes. I, I was shocked. I'd read Brave New World multiple times, but I didn't remember that specific quote. And I was like, oh my word, right here, Huxley the atheist said, this whole thing is coming off the tracks. We got problems, and I need to go back and find a source that will explain what the problem is. And he goes and gets a Roman Catholic cardinal who says, don't you understand? You're, you're made by God. You're, you're not made to rule for yourself. You're not made to define your own reality. Your happiness comes from embracing God and his ways. Now, you may say, well, you know, that's dystopian novels. They are speaking truth to us. There's a reason why they've resonated. But we even see this in certain things. There was a, a uh, study that was done a number of years ago. It was landscape architects, and they were making, they designed playgrounds for kids. And one of them was wise enough to think, you know, what, what kind of playground, what kind of architecture, what kind of landscaping works best to cause the children to flourish? And here's what they found. Build a playground and do not put a fence up and all the kids cling to the parents and the teachers' pants. They don't want to go out because there's no limits. Put a fence up and the kids spread. See, the kids are wiser than we are. They realize that certain boundaries actually bring forth freedom. And once they know the boundaries are there, they go out and they explore. They actually are more free by knowing where the boundary is. Remove the boundary and it's chaos. And they don't know where to go or what to do. And we are that way, friends. Our culture is proclaiming that freedom is the absence of any fences. And then we wonder why we're not finding true freedom. We're not because that is not in line with reality. True freedom is only possible when there are inherent limitations and restrictions. And the key is when I recognize that and I embrace it rather than trying to define it away. So, and it's especially true, I want to state, for humans because we're created in God's image and we're only going to flourish when we embrace that and recognize that it's just as true morally as it is physically. See, most of us realize I can, in my own bold way, stand up on a tall building and declare that gravity doesn't exist. Does anybody have any question what's going to happen when I step off the ledge? But see, we define and say, but that's not true morally. It's true in every other thing that we can possibly see in the rest of the cosmos, but when we come to this area, we're really certain it's not true. I wouldn't put my money on that. And in fact, we find out it really is true. And the reason we struggle more and more and more is we've misunderstood what freedom is. So we're going to Come to the Lord's table, which is a table of freedom for you and me. And so 
I want to encourage you this morning as you are here. If you believe that God is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, and if you are looking to him for truth and salvation, then you are invited to this table. And I encourage you to hear God's words of invitation. Come, all you who are thirsty, and you have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. If you believe and embrace the faith, you are welcome to participate this morning. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are the almighty maker of heaven and earth. The heavens declare your glory, and all creation gives testimony to you. You made the whole cosmos, from the largest galaxies to the smallest particles. And these all obey your sovereign will. But we alone are made in your image and called to choose to obey, to conform our thoughts, desires, words, and actions to your holy will. We hold this bread, the broken body of Jesus, and confess that we have failed to do this preferring our foolishness to your wisdom and our shifting hidden desires to your established, revealed will. Forgive us, O Lord, and renew us in your covenant mercy through the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the flawless son of man, the second Adam, perfectly fulfilling the covenant of creation in our place. Where Adam failed, you have been gloriously victorious. And yet, 
you went to the cross and shed your blood, not for your sin, but for ours. And through that perfect righteousness and shed blood, you have forgiven our sins and restored us to our standing before God. So we lift up this cup and we give you thanks and we freely proclaim that you are our only hope of salvation. Friends, take and drink. Why don't we stand together for our closing prayer and benediction, and I encourage you as always, as I cry out to the Holy Spirit, please join with me. Holy Spirit, at the dawn of creation, you hovered over the waters, preparing them to respond to God's ordering word. And working each day as creation moved from chaotic formlessness to blessed, fruitful order and structure. And when we were dead and unfruitful, children of chaos, full of darkness, it was you, O Holy Spirit, who moved upon our hearts causing the light to pierce through our darkness and to shine into our hearts so that we would have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we call upon you now to move upon us, causing any remaining areas of darkness and chaos to give way to your light so that our lives might be ordered by the word and will of our God. Let your light pierce the dark foolishness of this age that remains in us so that we might see and embrace the truth. Let your light pierce the dark desires and passions that remain within us so that we may hunger to be conformed to the will of God. Bring forth the fruit of obedience in us so that we might hung, uh, so that we might experience the blessing of joy in all we do we ask this in the name of our lord jesus christ and god's people say amen may the lord make you increase both you and your children may you be blessed by the lord the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, go forth blessed and be a blessing through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.